Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. While American Christians fight for social relevance in the culture wars, the writers of the New Testament cancel themselves. Enough said. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23, verses 5 to 12. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 362 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Last week, we explained that Jesus is specifically bringing the Pharisees and the scribes front and center because what they teach is to be followed. And at the same time, he is undermining them personally because self-righteousness is the great sin in the biblical tradition. And so unique among all the sacred traditions upon the earth, Scripture found a way to lift up the teaching and discredit those who are sharing the teaching. Every other tradition, be it philosophical or religious, revolves around the guru, the sage, the wise old man. But in Scripture, there's only one wise old man, and he's in the heavens. And his son here is telling you, there are no gurus. There are no good men. There are no wise men. There is only a wise and correct teaching. So do what the teaching says and ignore the teacher. The correct teacher is the one that simply conveys the message. They don't think up a message. They convey wisdom. They don't come up with wisdom. This is a teaching that makes fun of the people who teach it. It always points out the flaws of the people who are supposed to be conveying it again and again and again. I mean, throughout Scripture, it shows that those who are closest to God and closest to God's teaching in Scripture are always, always, always fouling it up. So the listener who thinks they've got it becomes problematic (laughs) because the teaching itself is saying that no teacher has got it. Oh, I guess you're the exception? You have to be careful once you think you're the exception. The Pharisees themselves, right off the bat, like we were saying last time, they can't follow the teaching that they're teaching. They put the heavy burdens on other people. They can't hold up the burden themselves. This is the difficulty of this teaching. It points out and undermines the very people who are supposed to be conveying this message. What's beautiful about Scripture is that it's impossible for contemporary cancel culture to cancel any of the characters because they're already canceled by the text, especially Jesus. You can't cancel Jesus Christ. He was already canceled. 
And that is why at the end of the day, Stalin was correct when he said that religion is like a nail. The harder you hit it, the deeper you drive it in. You cannot defeat Jesus when his own father facilitated his defeat in order to bring you down. That is the beautiful wisdom of Scripture. Remember last week we explained that in condemning the scribes and the Pharisees, <laughs> Scripture is honoring them. This is a story in which the Son of God was executed. Funny how the X is the symbol of cancellation, and it's also the symbol of the Christ, the cross, the X, the He, Christos. It's apropos. So in order to hear Matthew, I want to invite our listeners today to set aside your ideological preferences, to set aside all of your inclinations towards self-righteousness, especially the Christians who love to rag on the scribes and Pharisees, who think they're joining with God by piling on. It's a mistake. Don't criticize anyone. Don't praise anyone. Just hear and learn. Just set aside the inclination towards self-righteousness and the inclination to be right. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. It's good for the clergy in this century that this is what everyone thinks of us. It's a blessing that we get no respect anymore, that people, when they see a priest in the marketplace, unless they're an elder Roman Catholic or an elder Greek Orthodox who says, hello, Father, most people, if you wear your collar at the store, want to spit at you. That's a good thing, because that brings the clergy of this century closer to Matthew than any generation before. On the other hand, it's not a good thing for those who spit at us, because in taking God's side against the clergy in their mind, they've distanced themselves from Matthew. So many Christians fulfill their duty as Christians, not because it's their duty, but because they want other people to see it and become Christians. They want to be the example that allures others. That's why if you look in any Christian publication, any Christian publication, it's going to give examples of wonderful Christians. Now, are they going to quote an exegete scripture? Maybe, maybe not. But they will definitely have stories. I mean, there's whole organizations around this. You know, the stories of the martyrs, this nonprofit organization that looks at persecuted Christians around the world. My heart goes out to the persecuted Christians around the world, but what's the teaching here? In 5 through 7, Jesus is honing in on why the Pharisees follow the teaching insofar as they do. It's so that they can be seen by humans and so that they can receive honors from humans. That is why they do it. There is no sense of duty to God. There is no sense of the one who taught this to them. There is no sense of once you receive this seed, you are to bear fruit. Because if the fruit is a nice seat at the feast, what's the kingdom? The kingdom 
was this vineyard. Remember all these metaphors about what the kingdom is. The kingdom is not being sat in a nice seat. This is the hypocrisy. The teaching is to make a slave of the one who hears the teaching. And guess what? Slaves don't sit down at feasts at all. (laughs) They serve the whole time. They serve the guests of the master. That's what a slave does. When slaves are seen by human beings, it's not good news. Watch any costume drama on Masterpiece Theater. The servants are in the shadows. A good slave, you don't have to call. A good servant, you don't have to call. They just appear when they're needed, and they disappear when they're not needed. And they say no more word than they have to. It's about remaining silent and remaining unseen. If 21st century costume dramas about the British Empire got this, we know that the teaching exists but I'm afraid it doesn't exist on Instagram when it's all about being seen and all about being honored. And that's the only reason why the entire platform exists. The hypocrisy is that you are not doing this for the kingdom. You are doing this so that you are seen. Throughout the New Testament, the scribes and the Pharisees are wrong when they're wrong because they're self-referential and they're not true to their own axiom of referring everything to God's law. And what Matthew is showing you here in verses 5 through 7 is that this takes them down a path where they end up acting just like the Sadducees teaching. Even though they proclaim the resurrection and the kingdom, even though they claim that you're supposed to follow the teaching of Moses, in their self-referentiality, they lead you down the path of a prosperity gospel where you become a teacher, or a priest, or a reverend, so that people will treat you deferentially in the marketplace. You've received your reward for your grand education. This happens again and again. People believe that there was a triumph of Christianity once Billy Graham was called to sit in the company of President Ronald Reagan, once the silent majority appeared in the White House. That's a defeat of Christianity. That's a rejection of the gospel of Matthew. And we all now see where that has led us, to an entire community of fundamentalists who are proud of themselves for not wearing masks, which is a complete rejection of the gospel and the care for the needy neighbor. Exactly, Father. You see the seeds of this as soon as you see that being recognized by the president being recognized by the UN, being recognized by whatever, once you need to be recognized, then your works are done to be seen by human beings. If you really believe that going without a mask shows your faith in God, and that's why you go without a mask, to show your faith in God, then you're rejecting the gospel of Matthew, who tells you, to hide your good works, to pray in secret, to wash your face when you're hungry, not to act like you're hungry. If your brother is terrified of the virus, if that's really your teaching, then you as a disciple of Matthew would take on his fear and cover your face so as not to embarrass him with your courage. Never mind that mask wearing is about care for the needy neighbor, not your fear or lack of fear. Let's give you your premise that it's about fear. What right have you to gloat and to flout mask wearing in order to shame your brother? 
The question is, what is the correct teaching, not who is the correct person? And we know what the correct teaching is. Love your neighbor. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. Verses 8 through 10 are excellent because people immediately jump to, don't call your priest father, don't call the teacher of Torah in your synagogue rabbi, you're not supposed to, you're all equal. They Americanize this teaching as though Matthew is saying, everybody's the same, we can all learn from each other, etc., etc. But verses 8 through 10 are explaining to you in a way that Romans would immediately understand that Caesar, whose title was father of fathers, is not your father. You have to obey Caesar, but his role as the father of fathers pertains to the one father who is in the heavens. You have to obey your rabbi, your Pharisee, your father, your teacher. You have to obey what they tell you to do, but their authority does not pertain to them. It pertains to the one father and the one teacher and the one rabbi who is in the heavens. And just because you refuse to greet a Greek Orthodox priest as father or a Roman Catholic priest as father does not make you compliant with this text. By refusing to call a Roman Catholic priest father, you are opposing this text because you make yourself a reference. How can you say you're fulfilling this text by not calling the local priest father and yet you have a parent whom you call dad? Don't you understand the commandment, honor your father and mother? Do you really think God is talking specifically about giving honor to your parent? Or does all honor towards the parent pertain to the one father who is in the heavens? By now, you should know the answer to that question. And I find it interesting, Richard, given all the work that we've done with the Orthodox Center for the Advancement of Biblical Studies to support leadership training for OCLI, that verse 10 talks about guides and leaders. It's usually translated as teacher because in modern Greek, kathikitis has come to refer to the professor because a professor is a guide. But it's interesting that leaders are called out in the pejorative in the same way, which is what we've been trying to say all along, that you have one leader in the church there are no leaders. There is only the teaching of the Father. The tragedy of fundamentalism is first decontextualizing one verse from a passage, and secondly, taking it super literally while not taking literally the other portions that are around it. So if you want to take it literally, where you call no person Father, that's fine. But whatsoever they tell you to observe, do it. If you don't want to call the local Roman Catholic priest father or the Greek Orthodox priest father, okay, but does that let you off the hook from doing everything they command you to do? Absolutely not, because someone may decide to show their piety by calling him father, but then not doing what he tells you to do. This is where Jesus really gets you, because 
the teaching you are absolutely bound to. And the person who teaches it to you, that's the one who gives birth to you. In Proverbs, we see this, where the teacher calls the student son. Was that a parent-child relationship or was it a teacher-student relationship? It's not clear because the teacher burrs the student through the teaching. Leaders are the problem. They don't feel like leaders unless they've got people following them. In corporate speak, you want to have a servant leader. Well, if the organization changes and moves everybody out from under their organization and moves them into another organization and they want to be a servant leader, everyone's going to laugh at them because they say, who are you leading? You're not leading anybody. There's no one in your org. And they're going to feel sad, quit, and go find another job where they can have people report to them. Report to them. Because in corporate life, it is about the ego. It is about the individual. That's why you do performance reviews at the end of the year. In scripture, there is no performance review at the end of the year. (laughs) The performance review every year in scripture is needs improvement (laughs) because you never get it right. There's no strong performance in scripture. So the Pharisees, guess what? No one evaluates their performance except God. The reason secular leadership models can never work in communion with scripture is because the whole impetus of secular leadership models is empowerment and what the leader has to say. That's fine if you are manufacturing widgets. It makes sense there because you're not dealing in wisdom, you're dealing in widgets. Notice how everyone who has a startup now in Silicon Valley is a guru. It's the same thing all over again. They're Sadducees, every last one of them. I made some money, so you should listen to me. Prosperity gospel. Please go away. I have Bible study. And scripture is saying the opposite. It's saying not only are those among you who are successful not wise, but you're the biggest problem on the face of my earth. Don't come to me as though we're supposed to listen to you because you made some money. I don't care about your management book. I'm interested in what my father sent me to teach. That's the lingua franca of Jesus Christ. So if you want to function correctly as a leader, according to Matthew, you have to become irrelevant. The New Testament is a story in which the teacher of teachers is executed. Jesus is canceled out. That's how he teaches. And I'm supposed to be impressed with your leadership book? Show me a leadership book that has one page with a hyperlink to the Bible, and then I'll read your leadership book. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. And here the word is not thulos. It is theakonos. And of course, we have to call this out because the English plays fast and loose with these terms and blends them together. Remember that the person who is a deacon of the Akonos is asked to do a particular job. But just like a leader or a teacher or a father or a rabbi or a patrician, whatever job you have, you have to do it as one who is enslaved to the words of the Father of Jesus Christ. Understanding this allows you to explore the question, 
why is Jesus lifting up this station in particular among all of these stations, which actually have value for society? We need teachers and leaders and rabbis and fathers and mothers. Mothers aren't mentioned, but the use of the term father has nothing to do with gender. Why, then, is the role of the deacon elevated? It's because a deacon has the responsibility of taking care of other people, waiting tables, visiting the sick, ministering to the outcast, and ultimately, just as a servant in a Roman household can perform all of these duties as a slave, even if they're not technically the property of the patrician, so too can a rabbi, a father, or a leader. The way that one performs this teaching is one repeats it, and then repeats it again, and then repeats it again. Why? So that they get recognition for this teaching? No, so that the original teacher gets the recognition. A diakonos is someone who does his job, or her job. That's it. During the Obama administration, there are many women who complained that women's voices were not listened to, that there would be men who would speak over them, who would take their ideas. And so they developed a strategy where if one woman said something and it wasn't recognized, another woman would repeat the same thing, and then another woman would repeat the same thing. Was that so that number two and number three got recognition? No, actually, it was not about their getting recognition. It was so that the first person got their recognition. That's the point. If someone says, Father, that's so wise, you say, I'm just repeating Scripture. This is how it works. Now, you thank the Father for teaching you that, for blessing you with this wisdom, but it's not about recognizing the Father as the one who does it. So don't call him Father. He says, you know what? Better just go and read the teaching. If you just listen to the words. During liturgy, you don't say, thank you so much to the reader. No. You say, peace be to the one who reads, because the peace and the completeness of the reader means that he is remaining true to the teaching, and that's really what matters. The one who is greatest among you is the one who just repeats the teaching, and they don't get a cookie, they don't get a trophy, they don't get a platform. They're just going to do their job. The best leader in corporate life, ask a CIO. You know who the CIO wants as his leaders? The ones who carry out exactly what he says and the way he says it needs to be done. Those are great servant leaders. And then those directors' orgs are going to look in the way that the CIO imagined them. Because they are all carrying out the instruction of the CIO. And the problems begin once the director and the VP start to think that they've got a vision of their own that they could lead their people into. Because what their people really need is X, Y, and Z. Well, if their people need X, Y, and Z, and the CIO says they need A, B, and C, and that's why he hired them, then it's time to do A, B, and C. And your job as leader is to do your job, be a good diakonos, and carry out your job to pass along the teaching A, B, and C to the rest of your org. I mean, this is how it goes. It's trickling down from the source of knowledge, the source of wisdom. As a Christian, as a believer, your job is simply to make sure that the teachings that appear in Scripture become manifest in your dealings with other people. And if the Pharisees and the scribes could learn this from Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, 
then they could perform the correct teaching without being self-referential, which would save them from their stumbling. And that's the ultimate lesson that Jesus is going to teach everyone. Because while he shames the scribes and the Pharisees so that we can learn, which is their honor that Jesus would use them to teach us, ultimately, Jesus will teach us to cancel ourselves by allowing himself to be executed. This is a fundamental lesson of Scripture, and it needs to be said, it needs to be repeated, because ultimately the failure of American Christianity is its desire to defend itself in the culture war. It is a rejection of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which we are crucified to the world and the world is crucified to us. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. This, like every verse in the Bible, you know how Father Paul will explain Genesis 1 through 4 says it all. Galatians says it all. Actually, Genesis 1 through 11 says it all. He's correct. It's true. Because each book, and in a way, each parable, and in this case, each verse can contain the genius of the whole story. You can't recognize or understand or hear the genius without the whole story. But that's the brilliance of this very unique literature. If you learn nothing else from the Bible as Literature podcast, learn verse 12 here in Matthew. Whoever exalts himself shall be, and I don't like the translation, Rich, because the translation smacks of Midwestern decency, and it doesn't fit what follows. A better translation of tapinoo is humiliation or to be humiliated. Whoever exalts himself shall be humiliated, and whoever humiliates himself shall be exalted, and in this book... It is Jesus Christ who is the most extreme example of humiliation. Because in the tradition of the Bible, when the human being is canceled, then it is possible for God to rise and for God to be exalted and for God to have hegemony. The teacher is erased. This is what Matthew is trying to convey in the story. It's not about, you know, humility in terms of propriety. That's useless. Because if the Pharisee were humble, he'd be useless as a teacher. And you may quote me. Please never accuse me of humility. I don't have time for that kind of nonsense. My mother was a Palestinian refugee. You're not going to teach me about humility. I am concerned about propagating the teaching of the Father so that we have maybe less refugees on God's earth. We're not going to solve the problem. We can't create the kingdom of God. This is the hubris of Western Christianity. Another version of the teaching of the Sadducees. Let's make the kingdom on earth. With all due respect, this is an affront to God. But we can at least propagate God's teaching in the hope that the Armenian refugee 
or the Oromo refugee, or the Ethiopian refugee, or the Syrian refugee, or the Yemeni refugee. We can at least propagate God's teaching on the hope against hope of his promise that his teaching will avenge the fatherless and the orphan. The humility of the refugee, I think, is a beautiful image for this because, as you translated it, Father, humiliation has a very different ring in English. As soon as the priest or the leader or the director or the manager conspicuously makes him or herself humble, they're doing exactly what the Pharisees are doing. They want the praise and the respect of men. They're being humble to be seen by humans. The priest who never goes first in line at coffee hour because he's humble is being conspicuous. He's being seen by men. And, you know, I want to call back to something you said at the beginning of the episode, Father, when you called back to the Sermon on the Mount. This isn't even new. Jesus has been saying since his first sermon in the New Testament, don't let other people see you be pious. Don't let other people see your righteous actions. Don't let them. And if humility is righteous, don't let them see you be humble. Because you're being humble so that they see you be humble. And I'll tell you what, if you want to know what the kingdom of heaven is, be humble to your father in private, who is in the heavens, and do not be humble in front of other people. Then you might have a chance at the kingdom. But if you're humble to the Father in private, then you're going to be a good diakonos and you're going to teach, not in a humble way. With other people, you're not going to be humble because then you might receive their accolades for being such a good, humble person and recognizing everyone's equality. No, don't do it. Don't do it. Just as a true diakonos, do your job. Be humble to your Father in secret, and be careful if you're going to be humble in public. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.